I'm just delighted to be with you. I loved coming here about a year ago. And everywhere I go and I find people who are looking for a church, I invite them to come here. So I should be working on commission for you. I don't recognize too many people, but um, I can just say that last time I came, I really, really enjoyed um, being here. And I also know Nick through the Pastors Fraternal. I also work with his father and I know he's a bit of a loose cannon sometimes and jumping around and full of fun and... It's just really, really nice for me to be here, and um, so thank you for the invitation. I work for Operation Mobilization, and many of you know OM through the ship ministry. Now, the ships are only one small part of OM. We've got around 5,500 people around the world. The largest team is in India with around 2,500 people. Um, My wife and I, we worked in Russia for 15 years. And we came back just uh, close to four years ago. We love working in Perth now. Lots of things happening. Mission is very much on the radar of many churches. But just two and a half years ago, I was driving down to Mandurah with another person called Lloyd. It doesn't happen often. And he is in charge of the Doulos and the Logos Hope. And the phone went. And it was just, just by Golden Bay turnoff. And the phone went, and he took it, and he uh, he's talking for about 10 minutes, and he got off the phone, and he goes, you wouldn't believe what that was all about. I go, well, tell me. And he goes, that was the German office just phoning. That's where our main base is. And it was Colonel Gaddafi's daughter talking to our office, asking if the ship could come to Libya. And I go, man, I don't believe that. That is just amazing. And today, right now, the ship, uh, there's a picture of it there, the Logos Hope, our big ship, around 500 people on board, 400 missionaries, many pastors, many trained people, is in Libya today, um, working, open doors, um, just to work in Tripoli or one of the port cities there. And I think it's just amazing what God is doing in our day and age. Uh, who can imagine, you know, Colonel Gaddafi, this um, Muslim bastion, um, very anti-Western, allowing a mission ship to come in to um, Libya. And just to open up the doors, um, the ship has just been in the, in the Arabian Peninsula and they say you can give out Bibles, you can do anything you like as long as there is a sign and it's all petitioned off saying for non-Muslims only. And so what do you think a Muslim, when he sees that sign, what does he think? He says, what is behind that curtain? Let me go there. And they have distributed more Bibles than in any other place in the world. And it's just amazing um, how God is working. And just in this last few weeks, just some of the opportunities of serving with OM. I don't know where you're at at the moment. Just looking at some of you um, in over 50 um, I would say some of the most effective people that I've seen on mission, in short-term mission, are the older generation. Um, just over the years that we were in Russia, we brought in around 2,000 young people, older people into Russia to work on short-term teams. I would say some of the most effective people, just the more experienced people in life, able to sit down with people, talk about some of their own tragedies in life, some of their own life experiences. But just in this last few weeks, Spoke with the Ansel's granddaughter. She'd been on the Doulos. She'd been serving in Birmingham on a multicultural team, going into schools, working with Muslims. And she'd been there for training for around six months. Another girl I spoke with, 
which was um, Crystal Dawson's um, little friend, and she had just been in Europe seven months, seven countries, a month in each of those countries, working in Moldova, Ukraine, um, in Albania, and just an amazing opportunity to travel around Europe to be trained to work in these different countries. And if you know any young people um, who would like, who need discipling, who are full of enthusiasm, who can handle um, seven months in a transit van uh, in very difficult conditions, but with amazing ministry opportunities, please just let me know, because it's a wonderful opportunity. Just last week we had a teacher come back from India. She'd spent her school holidays. She went to India, went for two weeks to go and visit some of the children that she sponsors. But also in India, um, set up over 100 schools for the untouchables. And they've got, I think it's 23,000 children now in these schools. And she just went as a teacher to the training base where they're training teachers and she did some workshops. And so if you're a teacher looking for opportunities to serve overseas, um, OM is certainly a place. And I know OM is just part of just God's bigger work. You know, there's many other great missions. I know you've sent people out with pioneers, a global interaction. Um, but sometimes OM may be the best fit. Sometimes it would be pioneers or somewhere else. We don't work in competition. just work together. And just also just sent off a young guy to the Logos Hope as a mechanical engineer. He went off as a project worker, sent another chap just a week ago as a, a welder. And if you're a practical person, um, the ships are always looking for people as carpenters, engineers, to come and keep the ship floating. It's an amazing ship. It's worth around $50 million. Uh, it's just amazing how God just, you know, five years ago we had no money for the ship. And today the ship, 90% of it's all paid for. Staff of 400 young people and older people. Um, God is at work. But I just want to tell you about one project that's really on my heart and is based out of Perth. And I'm going to do a quiz on Afghanistan. Now we hear lots of bad news from Afghanistan. And I'm working here in Perth with some Afghans. Names are Khalil and Nazira. Don't go publicize all of this. Um, But they are so brave and just amazing. They were refugees in India 12 years ago. They both studied in the Soviet Union. They both speak fluent Russian. That's how I got to know them. And when I came back to Perth, they asked me to get involved. I'm the chairman of Good News for Afghanistan, for Afghans. And they do radio and satellite TV broadcasts into Afghanistan. And I've just been wa- walking with them over these last few years. They're based out of Como Baptist, got a board, and they are some of the most effective people. And, but before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about Afghanistan. I'd like to do a quiz, got some really good prizes. So the first person with a hand up. And the book is by George Verwa, Out of the Comfort Zone. So in there is a ticket to Afghanistan. So um, come and answer some of my questions. Okay, so who can tell me the population of Afghanistan? Lots. Okay, how many millions? Closest? 27 million. You got all the prizes last time, as I remember. 27 is good. This is why he always greets me at the door as I flick through my notes. (laughs) Okay, Rich, that's good. 27 is close enough. So it's 28.3 million. So there we go. Okay, next question. What's the capital of 
Afghanistan. Kabul, that's great. Okay, there we go, another book. Okay, um, when did the Soviets invade Afghanistan? Okay, and which Olympic Games did a lot of the Western countries boycott? Okay, so Reg is mouthing the correct answer to me. Uh, okay, anyone else? Who reckons it was 1980? Okay, no, that's wrong. <laughs> but, no, that's very close. 1979. There you go. Jo- Joan's a friend of my mum, so I've got to be nice. Uh, yeah. Okay, and a lot of countries boycotted the 1980 Moscow Olympics. Okay, what are the predominant languages in Afghanistan? Afghan. (laughs) I can't give you a a book for your cheeky answer, but no, that's wrong, mate. No. (laughs) It was him, was it? (laughs) The wrong answer always belongs to someone else, yeah. Okay, he's a ventriloquist. Okay, so what are the main... Languages. Anyone know? Urdu. Okay, that's Pakistan and no, that's close. I'm going to give you a book. Arabic. Okay, it's Pashtun. So the language of the Taliban, which is the major people group, the Pashtun, very proud, sort of persecute all the other ones. They speak Pashtun. And then Dari. Anyone heard of Dari? So it's a form of Arabic. So I'll give you this. There we go. Guys are doing well. Okay, last question. Okay, how many Christians do you think are in Afghanistan? Not many. That's right. Okay, so Australia's got a population of around 22 million. Is that right? 22 million. Afghanistan's got a population of 28.3 million. And we're just talking during the week with Nazira, just saying, and a couple of other missionaries who have been working there. So, how many Christians do you think there are in Afghanistan? Half a million? Yeah, we wish. So, you can keep praying for that. They reckon there's probably around a thousand. So, you think of a Riverview church or some of those bigger churches, a lot less than that. Okay, but good news for Afghanistan, so I'll just pass that book back to you. So I can pass that back. Um, It's just, can you just imagine the whole of Australia just with one or two small churches? Um, There's an underground church there, so we don't really know the impact. But just working with Khalil and Nazira, I called, called in to see him just a few months ago, and he was just really nervous and stressed. I said, Khalil, you know, what's wrong? And he goes, oh, just pray for me, Lloyd. I said, well, what's, what's going on? He goes, tonight I'm going to interview the treasurer of the Taliban party who has become a Christian. And you know the Taliban were removed from power after NATO forces went through. And this treasurer, he was the treasurer of the whole Taliban party in Afghanistan, he became a Christian. And the Taliban burnt his house down. He was in it, got horrific burns. But he's got the most amazing testimony. He is now in hiding in Europe. And he said, we've been able to track him down. And tonight, I'm going to interview him on radio. And I'm going to speak in Pashtun. He says, it's not my normal language, but I'm just going to interview him. Can you just pray for me? 
I just thought, what an amazing opportunity. Because when people, Afghans, hear Pashtun and Christians from Pashtun, they don't believe there are any Christians in Afghanistan. But to hear a Taliban politician speaking about becoming a Christian um, is just absolutely amazing. Well, anyway, he did this interview. Um, it all went very, very well. But these guys, Khalil Nazira, every Tuesday night... They have a call-in centre, so people listen to their programmes, they're repeated during the week, and then people can call a 1-800 number, so no one knows where they are, so I don't want you to publicise where they are, and put on Facebook um, where these guys are. But they're getting two to three hundred phone calls per month in response to their broadcast through satellite TV, and then also through... Um, the radio. And it's just amazing when you think of the Logos Hope in Libya. We think of all these phone calls just coming out. These are the people who are responding. And I've listened to some of these phone calls and just whole families sitting around responding to the gospel message. But many of the phone calls coming through at the moment are also death threats. And the friend, Khalil's friend in America, who's in charge of the satellite TV, just in the last few months, he's had 11 death threats. And he has just phoned Halil and said, hey, if I get knocked off, which I believe I will, I want you to take this over. I want you to take over this broadcasting. And it's just an amazing situation, is that, you know, we're here in Golden Bay, um, and yet we're part of what God is doing around the world. We pray, we sing, we worship. And sometimes we don't understand what God is doing. We're not aware. We remember Elijah just complaining before God, saying, you know, I'm alone, you know, poor old me. And God says there's 7,000 people here in this country who have not bended their knee to Baal. Now get on your bike and get going, you know. I need you in position. And so, you know, we send out missionaries to Bulgaria, support your people in India, Africa, um, we never know what God is doing. Sometimes God opens up the veil and shows us to encourage us. But sometimes we just got to slog on. And for me, you know, just to be here, just to see what you're doing, praying, um, there's tremendous atmosphere here. And, you know, God bless you. And I just pray, you know, that as you get involved in mission, um, don't underestimate what God can do through you and through your encouragement to other people. So one day I'd like to show you um, a video and introduce you to Khalil. He just preached at Rockingham Baptist. He just spoke at Warnborough ba- um, Church of Christ. <laughs> yeah, don't tell him I said that. Um, but um, just amazing testimony um, of what God is doing. And these guys are just so brave. And we keep saying to them, you know, shouldn't you just keep this little bit quiet? And they go, listen, you know, God's protected us this long. Um, We're just going to speak out in faith and just go as long as we can. And just during the week on Friday, I went, a Christian businessman just came up and said, hey, I'd like you to use, I've just bought a warehouse. Here's an office. I want you to use it as a recording studio. What do you think? Um, And we said, this is just amazing because we're four minutes away from his house. And God is... God is at work and we just need to get connected and be encouraged. 
And so, today I just want to speak a little bit about Jacob and Esau. I just take my watch off during the week. I was lecturing at Perth Bible College and I was, we'd fallen a bit behind and I had all these notes that I had to catch up on and were going so well. I looked down at my watch, my fake barley Rolex. I thought, man, five minutes in, I'm getting so good at this job, you know. Ten pages of information in five minutes. And I thought, oh, my watch has stopped, you know. And all the students going, it's time for a break. And I'm going, so, anyway, just give me the nods, Nick, if I go over time. So, um, the reason why I like this story of Jacob and Esau is that when we look at the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham seems like this model, this amazing person, this man of faith. Hebrews 11 says he was a man of faith. Just a fantastic person. But when we look at Jacob, you know, I feel a greater affinity with Jacob. Um, His name means trickster, schemer, heel catcher. Not that I'm a heel catcher, a schemer, a trickster. But, you know, you look at his life and it's far more ordinary He struggled so much. Um, I just feel a greater affinity. And today, as we look at his life, I just want to draw some parallels between his life and our life. And I feel like his failings just speak to us and can speak to us in a very powerful way. And Jacob was the father of the Jewish race. All the Jews traced their heritage back to Jacob. Um, His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. He had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember Joseph, Benjamin, Issachar and all these other tribes. But his life was marked by many failures but also by a number of victories. And even though he failed in many situations, there was just a very, very deep spirituality within him. We all remember him wrestling with an angel. But as we just recap his story, um, we see that he took advantage of his hungry brother. Esau comes in from the field, he's hungry. Jacob, you know, he deceives his brother a number of times, takes advantage of him. He deceives his older father and receives the family blessing. It says that Isaac, the father, this great patriarch, loved Esau. And you just wonder what he saw in Jacob that he didn't really like. It makes it out, Scripture makes it out that Jacob was more of a mummy's boy. It says that he flees from his brother Esau to his uncle Laban and then Laban deceives Jacob. So his whole life is just one of deceit, of being deceived. It says that God appeared to him in a dream and there's these amazing um, situations where God comes face to face with Jacob. And then he wrestles with an angel. He tries to buy himself out with Esau, out of trouble. Tries to give him gifts and saying, look Esau, I know you have every right to to be angry with me, but hey look, you know, look, I'm very wealthy. How about taking all these sheep and, you know, let's be friends again. And Esau, um, who is the profane person um, and the godless person, acts in this really gracious way, forgives his brother and says, look, look, just move on. And now we look at Jacob's children and they grow up in hatred and violence. And so we have this kind of really um, tortured person, great spirituality, but his life of 
deceit, deception of being deceived, um, living in, as an exile, um, and just on the run for most of his life. And the first point, I've just got four very brief points this morning, just about Jacob's life. And the first point is, is that Jacob was loved in eternity. I've been reading F.B. Meyer. He was a great Baptist preacher around just after Spurgeon. And some of these are sort of Old Testament or sort of um, King James Version sentences and I got them from F.B. Meyer. And he just comments and he says these, that Jacob was loved in eternity. And what do I mean by that? Is The first point is this theme of election is that the story of Jacob reveals that God loves not because we are good, but to make us good. And this theme of election, of God loving before time, before we were even born, there's this sort of whole theological argument. Do we have free choice or is it all predestined? And it's just, as we look at Jacob's life, it says that God loved Jacob in eternity. And Romans chapter 9, you know, Paul talks about Jacob and Esau and just the unfairness in this. And he says to his readers, to the Romans, he says, don't call God unfair. Who are we as the clay to say to the potter, what you're doing is unfair? Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, decrees the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And you think, man, just a strong language. Before they were even born, their lives were mapped out. And so what does Scripture say? It says that it was a prenatal love before they were even born. It wasn't based on what Jacob's good life, because we know that he wasn't good for most of it. The decision was made before Jacob was born. And God's love for us here today does not rest on time and what we do today and how we live our lives, but eternity. And as you look at Jacob's life, um, which was heaven's favourite? If you looked at heaven and everyone looking down, who do you think was heaven's favourite? We know that Isaac, the father, loved Esau. Because you look at Esau, he was the hunter, he was the athletic one, he was affectionate to his old father, he was forgiving to his brother, he was a chief, he was wealthy, he was this great sort of man. And then it says, the writer here of Genesis says that Jacob was smooth in skin, you know, delicate, slight in feature. He loved the home life. And he just draws this picture of this, you know, this hunky guy and then this, this, you know, little guy hanging around the camp, cooking and he... But there was something radically different between the two. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Esau was a profane or he was immoral or in our translations that he was a godless person. Something radically different between the two. And Jacob was a spiritual person. It says that he confessed that he was a pilgrim and a stranger. He was able to weigh up the promises of faith with the passing pleasures of sin. He was able to differentiate between what the world had to offer and the spiritual blessings of what was promised to his 
grandfather Abraham to his father Isaac. He understood the significance of the spiritual heritage. And God's love rested on Jacob. And just looking at this whole theme of election is that, you know, it would take great comfort that we are elected, that God has chosen us. But the emphasis in Scripture is not for us to say, oh man, look at me, God's chosen me. Isn't that fantastic? Um, I'm secure. Nothing can snatch me out of God's hand. The emphasis in Scripture is that God has called us for a purpose. Yes, we have security, but for Jacob, his calling was not to a life of comfort. He lived his life in exile. He worked as a hireling. He confessed he was a stranger and pilgrim on earth. When you look at the calling, Esau was the one who had the comfortable life. Jacob had a calling to a very difficult life. An election refers, if not primarily, to the service which the elector qualified to render to their fellows throughout all coming time. And I think of us, and I think of our lives, and what God has chosen us, which is amazing, and we delight in that. But what is that calling for? What has God called us to do in our church, here in Golden Bay, in Australia, and in the wider world. Maybe it's to go, maybe it's to send other people to pray, but what is that calling on our lives? Do we actually even know what that is? I'm just In Russia, for us, you know, we knew what our calling was. Coming back here to Perth, I'm just as excited about mission as I was over there, and just so aware of what God is doing here, and just trying to align myself, making choices that will align myself. And so for Jacob, you know, there was this calling. It wasn't a life of comfort. It was hardship, working as an exile, running, but God just using him and making him good. God didn't love him because he was good, but to make him good. And for all of us, you know, God is at work in our lives to make us good. He is not disappointed with what he sees. Um, but reveals things over time to make us good. And the second point here is that we shouldn't snatch at unripened fruit. Um, It's just interesting to see how Jacob took advantage of his older brother. And it's not difficult to imagine, because we read in these verses is that the two brothers struggled even in, in, in the womb of their mother. And yet, um, you know, Jacob, um, you know, he had this very close relationship with his mother. I'm sure his mother would have said, hey, listen, you know, don't worry about your older brother and how good he is. He's the athletic hunter. Because God told me right at the very beginning that he is going to serve you. And it's not hard to imagine that Jacob already knew that, that somehow he was special before God. And yet, Jacob took things into his own hands, waited for the opportune moment, and then took advantage of his older brother and said, hey, look, you're hungry, you know, but sell me your birthright right at the very beginning. And this incident reveals that timing is everything. And Scripture speaks of many of God's leaders who got their timing wrong. We remember the story of Moses in Egypt. You know, he saw the Egyptians being cruel to his fellow people and he said, you know, no, this is enough. He killed the Egyptian, thought that God would just really bless that. 
And in the end, he had to flee. And Jacob was right in desiring the spiritual blessing, the gift, but he was wrong in taking advantage of his older brother. And Jacob takes advantage of his brother and then he deceives his own father and he tries to hurry up God's plans. And it's as if the end justifies the means. And many of us have acted wrongly under the idea of being useful in promoting God's cause. And I just think back to our time in Russia, people doing projects quickly, taking shortcuts, um, just working with corrupt governments. There's always this temptation to just put a few things under the desk, gift of money here just to get projects, you know, rubber stamp to push things through. And the great lesson for us is that sometimes we have to wait patiently for God's timing. We must not snatch at unripened fruit. We must not take actions into our own hands or run ahead of God. And I think for all of us is that sometimes God gives us promises, dreams, visions of what the future will look like, um, just sort of hints of what the future may be. And sometimes there's this temptation to snatch at this unripened fruit. Um, just like Jacob to say, look, I know I'm God's chosen one or God's put me here. Let's hurry, hurry up God's plans. And for us, especially in mission, we have to wait for God's timing. And just working on a few projects at the moment and just coming, oh, come on, let's just hurry this up, you know. Let's seize the moment, seize the day. And just thinking, hang on, God's not in this. Let's just got to do our homework, prepare ourselves in a better way. And the third point is that the mightiest events revolve on the smallest pivots. And, you know, Esau comes in and he says, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff. And my translation here, you know, red stuff. And I think the translator, you know, is thinking, what was that stuff? You know, I'll just put stuff in here and I'll find out what it was later on. And then someone comes along and takes it off to the printer you know, and you know, he says, oh my goodness, I forgot to put in there. It was porridge, red lentils. And, and um, a pot of stuff. And I think for each one of us, is that pot of stuff can be something different. Is that there are areas of weakness in all of our lives when the enemy can come along and just wave this pot of stuff and try and get us to swap the heavenly for the temporary, for something that's appealing to our senses now. Esau did not value his spiritual heritage. And Jacob would have been aware of that. It wasn't just something that just happened very quickly. He knew there was a weakness, that Esau wasn't really um, enamored with his spiritual heritage. And so he just waited for that opportune moment. And when he came in and he was vulnerable, he took advantage. And... You know, what was his birthright? It wasn't a material thing because Esau was already a hunter, very skillful. Um, as we trace the story through, he had many servants. He was already wealthy. It was a spiritual heritage. And it gave the holder the right to be the family priest to intercede before God. It was a link in the line of descent by which the Messiah was to be born into the world. And I was just reading Matthew Henry, looking at the commentaries. I always found it hard to believe. He, the skillful hunter comes in, he's about to die. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you just go a few steps further and go and make yourself a sandwich in the tent? You know, 
Come on, you know, just come on, mate. Get on with it. But Matthew Henry points out, we cannot suppose that Esau was about to die. It is more that he understood that he wouldn't live long enough to see the promises of the covenant fulfilled. As he knew there was these amazing promises of land, of blessing given to Abraham and then to Isaac. And so, you know, the promises to inherit Canaan or any of the other future blessings. And therefore, he thought, what's the big deal? I'll trade the spiritual, the eternal for the earthly and the temporal. This stew, this red lentil, this delicacy. Let me satisfy myself now. And Hebrew 12:16 says that Esau was essential or a profane man. It says that life appealed to the senses. You know, he could do everything. And I'll just read this quote for you. It is our greatest folly to part with our interest in God and in Christ and heaven for the riches, the honours and pleasures of this world. And the parallel to our lives is is that all of us are given gifts and talents, but we often fling them away for something that is temporary and that is tempting now, for something that the world can offer us. I just want to read for you this quote. And the appeals to sense come most often when we are least expecting them. When we say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes. The foe creeps through the postern gate. The arrow penetrates the joints of the harness. The moment of crisis is the moment when we come in from the dangers of the chase to the home, which promised us immunity from the attack. Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things. These appeals, moreover, come in the midst in the most trivial things. One mess of pottage, one glass of drink, one moment's unbridled passion, one afternoon saunter, a question and an answer, a movement or a look. It is in such small things, small as the angle at which railway lines diverge from each other to east and west, that great alternatives are offered and great decisions made. When we fail in some such thing, we often comfort ourselves with the reflection that we could and would do right in some all-important crisis. We cannot pray in a bedroom, but we can burn at a stake. We cannot speak to an individual, but we would preach at Pentecost. We little understand ourselves. We do not see that trifles are the truest test of character, and that if we cannot run with footmen, we certainly would not content with horses. And if we have been wearied in the land of peace, we certainly shall stand no chance when we are called to battle with the swellings of Jordan. There are no trifles in Christian living. Everything is great, because the mightiest events revolve on the smallest pivots, and the greatest harvest for good and ill spring from the tiniest seeds. And the challenge for us today, for you and for me, is to look at those small decisions that we make, and just ask ourselves, You know, are we just like Esau, just exchanging the spiritual for the temporary, for what God promised, for what the world has to offer? And there's that test every day that we have to really be aware of. And the fourth part, my fourth question or point is, is that the past is irrevocable 
but it is not irreparable. And the fourth point is with regards to Esau and how Esau, how Scripture just records Esau's attempts afterwards to repair the damage. And Hebrews chapter 12 verse 17 says this, For you know that even afterwards, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it, the blessing, with tears. And you can see that he is sorry, but that he is not repentant. I think for all of us, um, there is a, we understand there's a huge difference in between sorry and being repentant. Esau realized what had happened, but it was too, re- too late to reverse the past. Esau could not alter the consequences of his decision to exchange the birthright for a pot of stew. And for us, we cannot pretend that the past didn't happen. We can't blot it out or undo it. Esau was sorry but not repentant. And there's just a great lesson for us today is that the greatest mistakes in our lives often come as a result of an unwillingness to repent of what we have done. And I I think for us, you know, just as I look back on just some of my own mistakes, is that, you know, we know that we can't go back and change it always, but we know that when we do repent, that God can repair the damage. Can't always undo those mistakes, but when we repent, God can repair the damage and He can repair the relationships, He can bring greater fruitfulness, He can change people's attitudes and there isn't anything that God can't forgive, only the sin of unbelief. And the great truth of Scripture is that God can and will forgive if we repent. And He can give us a fresh start, new opportunities, He restores what the locusts have eaten and He can restore holiness within our lives. And so as we look at this story of Jacob and Esau, you know, we celebrate our election. You know, God has called us, given us this amazing chance to live in relationship, but what has he called us for? You know, what are we doing here as a church, as individuals, as a community? God loves us not because we are good, but to make us good. Um, We celebrate God's promises to us, the visions and dreams that he has given but we must wait patiently for God's timing and not to snatch at this um, unripened fruit. And then we remember that all of our little decisions, they add up and the mightiest events revolve on the smallest pivots. Let's be careful in exchanging the spiritual for the temporal. And we can't always undo our actions, but we can repair the damage through repentance and through God's strength, and we can rectify these relationships. So let's just pray together. Father, I just thank you for calling us as individuals, Lord, for giving us salvation. Thank you for just mapping out our lives um, in eternity before time began. And we just pray that you would just continue to reveal to us what you would have us do with our lives, how you want us to serve other people in Golden Bay, Lord, in our communities, in our workplaces, and also around the world. And Father, I just pray that you would just help us to be aware of all these decisions that we are making, 
Lord, just how our lives revolve on the smallest of pivots. And I just ask that you would just show us any of the mistakes we've made that we can repent. Lord, so that we can just be useful on mission, that we can just take our place and just draw people to you. But Lord, I just pray for this church. I just ask that you would use them and bless them and just help them to be a light in this community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.